Um, today's reading could be found on page 152 in your pew Bibles, Ephesians 3:14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's pray again as we, as we sit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather to hear your word today, and we acknowledge our need of your power that we might understand your word to us, that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. So assist us, Father, encourage us where we are discouraged, rebuke us where we are drifting into sin. And above all today, we pray that the Lord Jesus would receive the glory due his name in our church and in his universe. For his name's sake, amen. Well, stunting, as it's known, affects around 25% of children around the world. It occurs when a child is malnourished. It's a serious condition that can lead to pure immune system, impaired brain function, and slower organ developments, and left unchecked can be life-threatening. But stunting is not just a problem for children in poor areas of the world. It's also a problem for churchgoers like us here today. The symptoms are that we start life with Christ, perhaps at youth group or college well, but soon after, the growth stops. We begin entering into a sense of defeat, spiritual malaise, lethargy or despair, a feeling that the gospel isn't really true anymore, that God doesn't really love me anymore. Left unchecked, it can then cause symptoms including a thanklessness, a bitterness, a sense of spiritual burnouts or of defeat as Jesus is left behind and as I drift away from the church of God. But why are so many believers and churchgoers like this, like birds that have had their wings clipped they can fly, but after a few minutes in the air, fall to the ground in despair. A sense of weakness and inadequacy, of impotence, and an incapacity to live and marvel for Jesus Christ. Well, this morning as we turn to Ephesians chapter 3, it's as if Paul is operating like our clinician, or perhaps as our therapist, 
He has the medicine for us, if only we'll listen, because he wants us to grasp the astonishing love of Jesus. And if today we are to grasp this astonishing love of Jesus, we are going to be liberated and energized for a new Christian life. It's all about power. And if you look at verse 16 and then at verse 20, you'll see that power is mentioned at the beginning of our section and at the end and right in the middle. Because last week we saw God's astonishing plan. The miraculous wisdom of God is to be displayed to the cosmos in the church. And the point was amazing, were you struck by it, that in a way that we can never really understand or grasp, right now the angelic order, the, the cosmos are sitting in the spectator's stands, looking down at us, marveling at us, And what they're marveling at is not our 175-year history or the beautiful sanctuary in which we sit, which can seat 600, or the amazing music program or the programs within the congregation. What they're marveling at is not us, but what God's done for us and in us and to us. Because God has taken a fractured humanity broken and vandalized in sin and shame, and he's reunited us to himself and to one another, an amazing cosmic display of his victory and his wisdom. And as the angelic order, the cosmos, watch from the spectator's stand, as they watch us today, what they're seeing is a snapshot, a trailer of what will happen at the end of the age. We are the demonstration of the future because this is a tiny snapshot of the eternal plan of God, of the new heavens and the new earth, of a new people growing together into Christ-likeness of character, united to serve Jesus as the sovereign ruler of our world. Well, all of that is exciting And there's something wrong with us if we're not excited by it. But it is also somewhat overwhelming. And all the more so for this Ephesian congregation. They're just a fledgling church plant. They've just been going for three years or so. They live in Gentile Ephesus, perched off the Mediterranean. They're just a tiny little house church. Can Paul really be saying that this tiny little house church all the way up in Ephesus that they are the display of the wisdom and victory of God to the cosmos and Paul's answer is yes just as it is for us but there's a danger we might feel overwhelmed by this like Atlas holding the universe on our shoulders which is why Paul now turns from God's plan to his prayer, and it is a prayer for power. Have a look at verse 4. As Paul says, for this reason, because of the plan, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. Before we actually turn to the prayer, four quick things about authentic Christian prayer. Notice it's always responsive. That's to say, we don't just pray 
for what's on our own hearts. We pray in response to the word of God in the gospel. So God has revealed his plan. We are blessed in every spiritual way in the heavenly realms. The plan has been revealed. Now we pray in response. Second, authentic Christian prayer is humbling because he's on his knees as an apostle. The picture is one of total submission, like a vassal subject in the presence of the sovereign. For in praying we are asking, and in asking we are admitting we don't have, nor can we find the resources ourselves. The picture is of total dependency. Third, notice that Christian prayer is Trinitarian. Paul is praying to the Father that the spirits would give us power, that Christ would dwell in our hearts. So Christian prayer, it involves us coming to the Father through the Son by the spirits. And last, Christian prayer is bold. There is no religious mantra here or special location or form of liturgy. There are no priests or special times of day in which to pray, but it's bold. We're not like nervous courtiers tiptoeing into the presence of some distant sovereign. The basis of our approach is that he is father, for we are his precious children, for we have come by grace And we are heard by grace. So while the Muslim has 99 different names for gods, not one of them is father, yet we dare to call him father, for he is the father who has saved us in his son. So here's a model prayer. We often pray the Lord's Prayer, but here's the Apostles' Prayer. A cracking prayer to pray. And a prayer I want to challenge you to pray for yourself every day this month, for your children, grandchildren, and for your church. For if we were to pray this prayer, I can guarantee our lives and the lives of our children and our church would be transformed. It is a prayer for power and a prayer that splits into two separate sections. Here's the first a prayer for power, that Christ would live in our hearts. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirits in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Already there is a rebuking challenge for my prayers. Because so many of my prayers are about the external circumstances of my life. I ask God to pray and help me with that difficult situation in the office. Not that there is one um, in my office. Uh, We ask God to deal with the annoying neighbor next door. Not that I have an annoying neighbor next door. We ask God to deal with the dog that barks at 2 a.m. Not that there is a dog in our neighborhood barking at 2 a.m. Or the complaining in-laws or the irritations at church. So we ask God to take away the problem out there. But Paul's prayer is not about the problem out there. It's about my heart in here. 
because Christianity, rightly understood, is not a progressive manifesto there to deal with the changing of my environments. Correctly understood, Christianity is about the reformation of not my world, but my heart. The locus of the prayer is the inner man. Because in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes how we have two selves. There is the outer self, rather like the shell on a turtle. And then the inner self, the inner being that you can't quite see. The outer self is wasting away. But inwardly, we are being renewed in the inner self every day. The inner self is the heart. It is the location and core of the will and of the decision. The inner self, the real self. Yet we spend so much time and efforts on the outer self. We go to medical appointments and hairstyling and dental checks. We work out in the gym and go to the nail vanishing salon and go clothes shopping. And I'm just talking about the men. <laughs> the outer self is the self that we see yet we live under the shadow of the fall. The outer self is like a shell. It's wasting away. Everything in this life will one day fall under the laws of atrophy as actually we decay and get older and decline. My teeth will decay. My hearing will deteriorate. My mobility will become impaired. My sight will be lost. And at the end, you will be faced with that six-foot hole into which your coffin will be placed, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. For dust we are, and to dust we will return. This is weird to us, but it's real. Because sometimes as people get older, as the outer self wastes away, you see more and more life in them. And there are people like that in our church. They really are wasting away. But as you look into their eyes, there is a sense of vigor and youth and energy. D.A. Carson, the writer, puts it like this. In fact, we can see elderly folk and in them something of the process that Paul has in mind. We all know of senior saints who have lost their physical strength they have reduced their capacities and have yet become more and more radiant. Their memories may be fading. Their arthritis may be nearly unbearable. Their ventures beyond their small rooms or apartments may be severely curtailed. But somehow they live as though they are already one foot in heaven. Their outer being weakens, but their inner being runs from strength to strength. Flip it around. There are also Christians for whom the reverse can be said. So Carson continues, conversely, we all know elderly folk who, so far as we can tell, are not suffering from any serious organic decay, yet as old age weighs down on them, nevertheless, they become more and more bitter and caustic 
and spiteful and introverted. It's almost as if the civilizing restraints opposed on them by their cultural expectations are no longer adequate. In their youth, they had sufficient physical stamina to keep their inner being capped. But now, with the reserves of energy diminishing, what they really are on the inside is coming out. I wonder which description best fits you. Paul's prayer is that in our inner hearts, Christ would dwell. But wait a minute, says our theological experts. Hang on a minute. When I became a Christian at youth group and when I became a Christian on that summer camp, didn't Christ enter into my heart and didn't he come to live in me then? Is this then a prayer for a second blessing? No, it's not a prayer for a second blessing because we've already got every spiritual blessing in Christ. Rather, the key is in the word that Paul uses. There are two different words that Paul could have used, but he chooses the word dwell. It means to come and stay and to make yourself feel at home, to settle down and form a home there. It's different to what we do at the Airbnb. So at the Airbnb, you'll stay for two nights, you move in for a night or two with your wife or your family. You might take a case or a bag. But what you won't do when you arrive at the Airbnb, at least I hope not, is to start putting up your own pictures, ripping up the carpet and putting down your own carpet, and then remodeling the bathroom. That's not what you do at the Airbnb, but it is what we do when we move into a new house and make it home. It's a strong word, this word dwell, which means to live permanently within, to literally put down in the house. So imagine a new couple as they get married and move into their house. It's a house that requires a lot of work to do. The wallpaper is disgusting. The carpet sustains. The basement is full of junk from the previous owner. The oven is unbelievable and disgusting. The roof leaks. The kitchen is bright red from the 1950s and the electrics don't really work. What they now do as they move into their new house is they roll up their sleeves and get to work. They get the dumpster and put all the junk in it. They need a second dumpster to get rid of all of the junk and it's taken away. They rip up the carpets. There are endless visits to Ikea as plants and lighting are brought in as the electrician moves in to help them, as the disgusting pink in the bathroom now becomes a beautiful clean white, as month by month and year by year, depending on their finances, they tackle the repairs, fix the leaks, buy a new furnace, put in the air conditioner, and eventually she turns to him, maybe two years in, and says, honey, you know, this house really feels like home. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Because when Christ moves into our hearts, that's what he finds. There's piles of junk down in the basements, a disgusting olive green bathroom, a leaking roof. He sees our sin in the way that we speak and think and behave and relate. 
And the Lord Jesus, when he moves into our house, starts dealing with the junk, repairing it, and making it beautiful, fit for his own presence amongst us. It is an incredible privilege to have the Holy God live within our hearts. It's actually the most incredible privilege when we think of what we had as Gentiles before. We were confronted with a temple. And in the outer courts, remember the wall in Latin and Greek that said no Gentile may enter into the temple. Trespassers will not be prosecuted but executed. And as you arrived as a Gentile at the temple, you were confronted by 14 steps up into the court of the Jewish women, and then the next court for the Jewish men, and then the next court for the Jewish priests, and then the next phase where only the high priest could go in. We weren't allowed in. And now, it's as if our hearts have become the most holy place. Through the shed blood of Jesus, the great priest, the great high priest whose body was the place of sacrifice, whose blood was the uh, picture of covenant grace. We are now the temple, the most holy place where the holy God dwells. But if the holy God's occupies your hearts, then your heart is going to have to become holy. We have a holiness through the blood of Jesus Christ, but now what God is doing is gradually changing us in reality, not just status, that our hearts might reflect his beauty and his grace. The doctrine lying behind this then is union with Christ, that through his saving death at Calvary, by his spirit, we've been included into Jesus, permanently united with him, with an unbreakable bond that the transcendent God of holy glory now occupies our lowly hearts, not for a flying royal visit, but permanently you are the palace, we are the temple forever. So Paul says we have been rooted, can you see that, and then grounded in love. And these two words are borrowed first from the botanical gardens and then from the construction sites. We have been rooted like a Californian redwood into the love of Christ. And we are being built as in a construction site on the foundations of the love of Jesus Christ. But the question is, why do we need power for Christ to dwell in our hearts? Why all this talk about power? And the answer is this. Because what Jesus is going to do in our hearts is establish his throne. And the problem as Jesus establishes his throne in my heart is my sin. This is something that I think we've lost in American evangelicalism as well as in British evangelicalism. We're very sentimental about the idea of Jesus living in my heart. So many of the songs that so many churches sing are junk And they're junk because they talk about Jesus entering into my heart as though he's my boyfriend or my lover. Gloriously, he is my lover, 
but before he's my lover, he is my Lord's. So when Jesus enters into my heart, it's not to give me the warm and fuzzies. It's not to make me feel really good about myself. He enters into my heart as the Lord's to turn me into a willing and obedient servant. And that, therefore, requires warfare, and a warfare for which I need power, because by nature I will resist his will in a spiritual tug of war. For as Jesus commands A, I will long to do B. And actually, Bunyan understands this. Not so much in the classic Pilgrim's Progress, but in the other classic very few of us have read, called The Holy War. It's an amazing book. I encourage you to read it. It's about a castle that is really a city by the name of Mansoul. Mansoul, this castle, is under the control of the enemy Apollyon. It's been taken from the king of kings. But the king of kings eventually arrives to take Mansoul back and to restore the castle, the city, under the rule of the king. But the picture is of a tremendous war. It's called the Holy War. It's what jihad means. There is a jihad inside my heart. As Jesus, by his spirit, through his gospel, pulls me in this direction, yet my sin pulls me in this direction, Paul says, if you want Jesus to establish his rule in your hearts, then we will need power. Is this a prayer we pray? It should be. But the question then becomes, what is the evidence that he has set up his throne in my hearts? And it leads to our second point in our prayer today, a prayer for power now that we would grasp Christ's love Verse 18, Paul says then that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength or power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I was talking to John DeLench in confirmation just now, and uh, we were comparing notes on the horrors of learning German vocabulary, which was John's experience and my experience. We both did German, and I also had to do uh, French. And the biggest challenge was French comprehension, having to learn the verb tables and then translate vast sections of French text. There was endless vocabulary and verb tables that were drilled into them. I can still remember the mon marme, tontate, sonsase, and so on and so forth, all under the demanding eye of the terrifying, formidable Mrs. Majors, who was determined that we would comprehend our French. But it never made sense to me in room three until the exchange to Brittany and my three months in Lannion close to Perosquirec on the coast and staying with my buddy John Paul. He then spent three months uh, with us. It was really only on the train and in the boulangerie and talking with John Paul, his mother and father, and then watching French movies. It was only really then that French made sense and John was saying the same 
of his German. It's one thing, isn't it, to learn the tables, mon mame, ton tate, son sassé, notre, notre, ne, votre, votre, vos, le, 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 from the blackboard, but quite another thing to actually experience French. And Paul here is praying that we would comprehend God's love, but not in a creedal way, not in an academic way, not in a confirmation class kind of a way, because the word he uses here really means to understand it in a way that we will take hold of it in our own experience. He is praying right now that we will understand the love of God, which surpasses all knowledge, in a way that goes beyond the heads, but transforms our hearts. Is this something that we're growing in? This love of Jesus is incomprehensible. And to underline that, Paul uses a form of language that is not perfectly understandable in the Greek. We don't really know what he's talking about. At school, we are taught about our prepositions, above, across, beyond, behind, below. And now Paul goes crazy with prepositions. How great do you think the love of God is for you? Well, try this. It's all around you. Now try this. It's over and above you. Now try this. It's, it's behind you. Now try this. It's all the way under you. Try and think about this. It's through you and in you and near you and with you. He uses four-dimensional language, the length and the width and the height and the depth. It's, I think, an echo of Psalm 103. Picture the vectors. Imagine the lines. We're going up and down and sideways and beyond us. But in the end, we're left with uncertainty as to what is being described. It's a bit like a child who says, Daddy, I love you zillions. Or to the moon and back. I don't quite know what the kid is talking about, but I do understand it's an awful lot of love. This love of Jesus for you is different to any other love you will find on planet Earth. Human love has its limits. My patience is wearing thin. I'm giving you one last chance. He's running out of road. But God will never give you one last chance. The road will never run out for you with God's love. His patience will never run thin. No matter what we do or how many times we offend him, there is still more love for you, over you, and under you, and behind you, and around you, and through you, and in you, from him for you, a reservoir, actually an ocean of grace, big enough for a Harvey Weinstein, or a Jeffrey Epstein, or a Martin Schrelinki. Do you know who he is? He's actually been voted the most unpleasant, hated American living in this country this year. I hadn't heard of him, but he's a 32-year-old chief executive of Turing Pharmaceuticals. He acquired the rights to a drug 
developed in the 1950s for AIDS patients. And at that point, the drug was $13.50 a dose. As soon as he acquired it, he upped it to $750 per pill. That's a $5,000 increase, which meant that many of these AIDS patients who couldn't afford it have now died. He has been described as a morally bankrupt sociopath, a scumbag, and a monster. But the love of Jesus around us and above us and through us and behind us is big enough even for him. A love vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free. Oceans of grace if he was to turn to Christ. And in the ancient world, as Christians thought about this verse, as they were going up to the heights and down to the depths and out to the outer regions, uh, they thought of the picture of the cross. High enough, look at the cross, for it reaches to highest heaven as we are seated with Christ there, and low enough that it can actually redeem a Martin Shrilinki, or more to the points, a monster called Tony Jones, wide enough that it can go east to west, for any who trust in Jesus Christ can be saved by his mercy and pity. John Stott puts it like this, the love of God broad enough to encompass all of mankind, Jew and Gentile, long enough to last all of eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner and high enough to exalt us to highest heaven. Is there somebody in the building who needs to hear this this morning, who needs to understand afresh the love of Jesus Christ in your failure for you? Yet we feel his frown. We are surrounded by doubts. We wonder if he really loves us. And Paul's answer is that he could not love us more. Do me a favor and glance at the last hymn we're soon about to sing and the lyrics there because it speaks of the deep, deep love of Jesus. It's taken from this text, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its uh, fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love leading onwards, uh, leading homewards to thy glorious rest above. It was actually written by a London merchant by the name of Samuel Trevor Francis in the 1850s. And the song is oceanic as it describes the love of Jesus like an ocean in depth and size and direction rolling underneath me, around me, the current of your love. It's a great hymn, isn't it? Because in the second stanza, we see where this love is located. It is in the death of Jesus at Calvary. And the author is amazed at how such love can be offered to him as he is full of sin. I want you now to picture a teenager on a bridge in London. It's called Hungerford Bridge. And the teenager is suicidal. 
as he looks down to the Thames in despair at his guilt, about to end his life. And as he looks down at that river, he sees the current, because it's a tidal river, the Thames, it's a very dangerous river, and the uh, ocean waves because it heads out into the sea. And staring down at that river was, in fact, this very author of this very hymn. And it was on that very night as he contemplated suicide and was about to jump as he saw the ocean, the movement of the tide, that somehow or other he remembered the gospel of grace. And on that uh, bridge that night gave his life to Jesus Christ and then spent the rest of his life serving and preaching the gospel of grace. Paul wants these Ephesians to know something of this, this love that surpasses knowledge, a love so big you will never grasp it, a love so vast we can never comprehend it. But where is the love to be grasped? Paul says, amongst the saints. And that is interesting. If we become a little Jack Horner and sit in our own spiritual corner, there is a sense in which we'll never really grasp this love. The love is to be grasped in the gospel, but in the gospel in the church. For as we look around today and see all the different stories, as we look around today and see all the different backgrounds, as we look around today and we see to ourselves and say to ourselves, we have to live together in this unity that comes from the gospel. That's where we experience the love of Jesus in all of its incredible wonder. As the Israeli army captain and the PLO Christian sit in the same growth group, or the Ukrainian and the Russian sit together in the same church service. As we all now seek to experience together this love, as we minister the gospel together, that's how we grow in the love of Jesus Christ. But Paul's prayer is huge. Verse 19, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is an incredible and audacious prayer. For the plan of God is to make us individually, but us corporately, 100% like Christ. As loving as him, as patient as him, as generous as him, as kind as him. And when I say as loving as him, I'm using the Greek word agape, which is the word that Paul uses, the selfless love that gives everything to the other. A theologian and commentator called Francis Folk puts it like this of verse 19. He, Paul, thus prays ultimately that we may receive not any attribute of God or any gift of his, not love, not knowledge, not strength alone or in combination, but no less than the very highest he can pray for, the full indwelling of God in us. Just as the temple was to be filled with the glory of God's, so we are to be filled as a church with the very love of Jesus, 
rooted in his love. That's our current status. But Paul's prayer is that in our reality and experience, we would feel that love expressed to us and from us as we marvel at the love of Christ and then experience and express that love out to others. It's a warning, isn't it, against factious division. There can be no factious division in the church of Jesus Christ, for that is to go right against the grain of everything Jesus is seeking to do within us. In C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, the older demon writing to his young nephew is attempting to explain how, as a young devil, we can undermine God's plan for his church. Listen to this. He writes, We must face the fact that all the talk about God's love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose lives on a miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his love. And that's why we need power, for Satan is at work in our church and in our hearts to undermine and sabotage the great and beautiful and awesome and brilliant plan of God's. As I finish, that's why he ends with a doxology, and we'll see this doxology next week in verse 20. But look how Paul ends the section, verse 20, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that works within us to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Amen. And the point about this prayer is it is going to be answered. God is going to do it. At the end of the age when Jesus returns, the prayer will be fully answered. We will have Jesus ruling from his throne in our hearts. And we will have had the power to grasp his astonishing love for us. This will be our experience at the end of the age. Jesus ruling us perfectly as a church. And Jesus allowing us to experience his love forever. That will be our experience. God will answer the prayer the meaning of life now is that we would grow in this power that Jesus might rule, that we might grasp his love for us. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge the immense privilege of having your son, the Lord Jesus, dwell in our hearts. Yet we acknowledge our sin and we pray that he would rule us. We acknowledge that you love us with a love that we cannot grasp, yet so often we acknowledge we have grown cold to it and pray that we would have the power to understand this love, the height and depth and breadth of it. Fill us individually and as a church family with a power to grasp 
and a love to experience that we might be filled to the full measure of the stature of Christ and we ask it for his glory. Amen.